Welcome to episode 111 of Literary Disco, Buried Child. Last month, America lost one of its great playwrights, Sam Shepard, passed away at the age of 73. And here at the Disco, we decided to go back and read one of his plays, and we settled on the play that really put him on the map, Buried Child, which premiered in 1978 and won the Pulitzer in 1979. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey. It's nice to see you guys. You too. Julia, do you have any news for us about um, anything coming up in your life that you want to talk to us about? Well, I went to Australia. Thank you so much for asking, Todd. wasn't... Uh, <laughs> Look, I just wanted to talk to the audience for just a second about something, a great deception that's going on. Well, audience, as you know, uh, I am going to be having a baby, and we already talked about that, because I got some really nice listener messages, so thank you all so much, uh, on my Twitter, which I never go on, so I promise (laughs) I will go on and respond someday. Uh, And there's even a Goodreads list for books for Julia's Child. I know. Yeah, it's so great. Um, I will tell you guys that Todd thinks that he can outsmart me into telling him or revealing the sex of my child, which I know and he doesn't, which is not a position he likes to be in. Uh, uh, to be clear, Ryder doesn't know either. It's not oh, that no. you just kept it from but me. But I'm going to sit here smugly and pretend I know. This is between you and me, Todd. <laughs> You're the one that's still trying to like get her to say. I, I'm just. I think I have a. I have a pretty clear idea. Look, uh, but right, Ryder has expressed equal convictions yeah. on both sides. So that's true. <laughs> I started out. I started out. Hey, look, I got a 50-50 chance, and so now I can. Just now you have a hundred percent chance right. because you're equivocating <laughs> so much. It's like from the Trump playbook, right? I said it one way, and then I said it the other way, so I win either way. Yeah. Right strong, the Trump of literary podcasting. Oh boy! No, I, I've settled now. I've settled now. I'm I'm convinced now, and I, I I'm convinced mostly by what Todd, what Todd said earlier off the air. Um, yeah, and we, we don't need to go into. No, but I, and why I don't wanna, you guys take your guesses? Go ahead. I just want to say that I I don't feel like Julia that you and and your husband Greg need to reveal to the American populace, uh, you know, anything personal about your child, the the sex that it's going to be, the any of that. I just want to know. (laughs) (laughs) No, what you want is to not have me know anything you don't know. That's hurting you. That is hurting me. (laughs) Yeah. But as, as Greg said... Whatever it starts out as, it could change its mind later. So whatever, it's right. not really that important but so, information. But hold either. on, but hold on. But regardless, I mean, I understand the whole like don't want to gender the kid beforehand argument, of course. But doesn't this mean you end up spending or getting a bunch of crap you're not going to use or need? Ooh. Because you end up getting doubles of stuff. Like people give you, because that's what happens. Like if you say you don't have the gender, like some people will give you like a pink this and a blue that, and then you have to like. Then I will either keep them both or I will either keep both of it or I will return it for store credit like a great American. Store credit. (laughs) Then buy coffee. That's That's what what Wendy Duran would do. Yes, that is exactly (laughs) what my wife would do. You are correct. You know know what? I think this actually this speaks to a larger thing is that instead of, um, you know, revealing the the gender of your child um, is 
just saying, look, just send me presents. Like, send me cake. And yeah, coffee. focus on me. Yeah. Focus on me. Greg would like a new first person shooter game. You know, any of that stuff. That That's was wildly be. incorrect, but sure. I, was say, I don't really see Greg playing first-person shooter games. Greg plays these, like, beautiful fantasy games that no one's ever heard of, and he's like, the design is so amazing. That's what... <laughs> but, I mean, I think, you know, like, it is. it does get really focused on gifts, and I'm the one who brought it up off the air, but, you know, it's more than that. It's people, like, expect creating expectations already. Like, I mean, I remember... Um, when my niece was late, you know, she was born a couple weeks late as like 50% of all babies are. Um, someone said like, oh, she's going to make boys wait for her. And I was just like, nope. And that, that is what happens. So like the longer that we can fend that kind of talk off, uh, the better. All right. I I was going to say it's going to be unavoidable once, once they're born. I support that. I mean, I support that onslaught. I support that just, you know, generally. But I want to know. <laughs> yeah, this is listeners. You must know this is a battle of wills, and this is about. Did you someone... say it's a battle for my son Will? <laughs> this is about Todd thinking he can outsmart me, but he can't. All right, listen. I will be very excited to tell you the real answer. I'm going to tell you one thing that I I told Julia before we were on the air, which is that she posted something on the internet about how she and her husband, um, Greg, were having a conversation about, like, imagining the conversations they're going to have with their child uh, when that child is a little older. And Greg imagined a conversation where he said to the child something along the lines of, why did you burn down that house? Why are you playing with matches? And my theory is that the majority of serial arsonists are men, (laughs) and therefore... Julia and Greg were having a boy. Well, let your your weird analysis stand <laughs> because Greg made one joke about having an arsonist. I'm just saying. Criminal readers, minded. That's what I am. Readers slash listeners, you're welcome also to make your guesses or attempt to outsmart me. You can be in- <laughs> included in this situation based on julia's social media attempt to outsmart her <laughs> okay well there's no way to make a smooth transition to a a, a very depressing play called buried child out of this conversation no it really isn't there's just no way to do it so we're just gonna jump right in yeah there's um, no there's yeah. i'm imagining several and they're all Ooh, bad they're all bad um yeah. so let's let's um well let's talk about sam shepherd for a second because we had we had an interesting moment before we went to air where um, uh, we were talking about what we do know about Sam Shepard and Todd assumed that he was from Kentucky or the (laughs) South somewhere because of the whole cowboy boot wearing tough guy image of Sam Shepard. And my understanding was that he was from Southern California and it turns out he he was, he was born and raised in, or he was born in Illinois, I think, and then grew up in Southern California and, um, became an actor first and then a playwright. He began writing more sort of absurdist stuff in New York in the 60s and 70s. And um, this play, Barry Child, really catapulted him to the world stage and became a, a huge success, winning the Pulitzer. And he went on to be nominated for an Academy Award in 1984 for his performance in The Right Stuff, uh, 
a movie I still have never seen, actually, but it's supposed to be a classic about astronauts. Um, so he's a really an accomplished playwright. And I mean, the guy wrote so many plays. Like when we first brought this up, there, you know, our options were sort of limitless as mm. to where and at what point in his career we could have. Um, and he's he's he's. I think, you know, Barry Child, and we can talk about this when we get into the text, but I think it's sort of, uh, the, the there's like a cliche version of Sam Shepard, um, and I think that this fits a lot of those uh, in that it's, you know, a family with secrets and characters with interesting names mm-hmm. like Dodge and, um, you know, uh, there, there there's a there's a sort of like Faulknerian American tragedy, uh, lots of alcoholism, pill popping, um, lots of angry men, abused women. Um, but then it seems, and I haven't read a whole lot of, of, of Sam Shepard, but it seems like he wrote a lot of different types of plays. Um, and like I said, like I guess early on in his career, and I haven't read any of these, but he, he wrote really sort of abstract, more absurdist stuff, comedic stuff. Um, and then uh, his later career, uh, it was sort of up for grabs. Like he's very hard to pin down. But... Um, I think as far as his reputation, he is known as a sort of Western, very uh, gritty American, uh, uh, all-American, old-school guy voice. Is that a good way to put it? Yeah, I mean, I think he, you know, I, I think this play put him on the map nationally, but, you know, it's a play like True West where it's just two men in a in a house, one of them is a writer, um, that also made him sort of iconic for the artistic class as well. Um, but, you know, he speaks to that kind of, um, the, the thing we've talked about a thousand times on this show, that, that, that cliche of the tough man of the West, you know, mm-hmm. who um, also, you know, can go, go home and paint after he gets into a fight in a bar or whatever it might be. Um, <laughs> But, you know, he was, I think, in his real life, I mean, this is a renaissance man. He he um, wrote, he acted. Um, I think he also was a painter, if I remember correctly. I think he might have done some painting. Um, but he also wrote fiction. I mean, he had a novel as well. Um, he did a little bit of, of everything. And I don't know if, uh, I know, Ryder, you read it because uh, we talked about it before. Um, but he also, you know, he had this, life of cultivated friendships with people from um different parts of the art world so apparently he and patty smith were great friends and she wrote this wonderful sad essay in the new yorker shortly after his death um you know the the thing about sam shepherd also is that when i read certain kinds of books i imagine sam shepherd as the narrator you know, any mm. any book where the main character wears like a, a denim shirt open to three buttons too far and his skin is cragged red <laughs> and, you know, um, he, right. you know, basically a Richard Ford, Rick Bass, Barry Hanna character. I always imagine them as Sam <laughs> Shepard. Um, and I think, in fact, Sam Shepard might have adapted um, a Richard Ford book. I think he wrote Bright Angel, which is an adaptation of three... Richard Ford short stories into a not very good movie. Um, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna check that right now. But you know, so he, wow. he was an, an icon. Um, wow, he did a little bit of everything. What What did you know about him, um, uh, Julia? While I look up Bright Angel. Well, this is actually 
Um, interesting because I see a lot of plays. It's a big part of my life. Um, but I have, I realized when we read this, I had never read or seen anything about him. Um, I have never, this was my absolute first, um, relationship with an actual work. I mean, I had obviously heard of him and actually, uh, it's funny because we've been doing, uh, in the winter an improv format, um, where we get a suggestion of a, a famous playwright. And I specifically remember someone was like, what's a famous playwright? And someone said, Sh- Sam Shepard. And as we often do, we'll just kick it right back to the audience. Like, okay, what's like, what's he all about? When you think of Sh- Sam Shepard, what do you think of? And the person who had said it was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> they were like, I, I can't name one play. I don't know. I just know it's the name of a playwright. Right. So that was essentially where I stood. Um, well, that's really interesting it, to me. I think that that, yeah. that speaks to a, a kind of a generational divide a little bit because I do feel like he was most popular in the yeah, 80s and 90s. For sure. he, was so, he really dominated yeah. American stage. And also, like, his style, like, his approach to theater, like, you know, the sort of, you know, like what we experience in Buried Child, which is just like a house set, you know, with like mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. floors and it's like a living room with a flickering TV and everything takes place in the course of like one night with a family drinking too much. Um, that that approach to like American theater is is very much like it dominated in the, the late 70s mm-hmm. and th- through the, the mid 90s and is now kind of feels a little cliched. You know, it feels like yes. something we've seen. I you know, I mean, I think August Osage County, which he acted in the film version of, is uh, sort of like the last gasp of that type of play. And it felt like a callback even when it was it premiered 10 years ago, however, however long it came out. Um, that felt like an old school play. Uh, so I, I feel like plays have really moved in, in different different directions uh, since you've been going to plays, Julia, you know? Yeah, that's certainly true in terms of, like, original works. But, like, I mean, I yeah, when I read this, I saw the Long Day's Journey into Night production that Philip Seymour Hoffman starred in, which was amazing. And it's so similar. I mean, it's oh, just, yeah. uh, it's the same exact Except thing. Except it's four hours long and nothing <laughs> happens but people yell at each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, the oh other thing God. about Shepard is that in, uh, in the last 20 years... He hadn't written, he didn't write as many plays in the last 20 years as he did in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. You know, his his output was far less. And of course, he had Lou Gehrig's disease the last several years of his life, so he wasn't doing new stuff. But the, I don't know if this is the case for both of you, but the version of Buried Child I purchased and read is actually a updated version from the original one that he rewrote parts of Barry Child in 2006. Oh no, I don't have that version. Yes, we have to, I have we'll that have to one. Compare, um, to, That's to, the acting version. Yeah, yeah. To, to make um, some of the characters a bit more rich and to update it a little bit. Um, huh. Oh, uh, we'll yeah. have to get into w- what the differences are then. Yeah, yeah there's well, a note we'll, about we'll it. Yeah. Um, yep. Th- so, just so uh, I'm clear, so he did not write Bright Angel, but he did portray the, uh, the, the narrator in of all these Richard Ford stories as an adult in these so maybe maybe my vision of him as being that guy is because he played that guy in Bright Angel mm-hmm. um, so, but he did not write or direct he just starred in it mm-hmm. um, I've seen a few productions of Sam Shepard plays the most notable was I saw I, and, and this is like one of the most formative theatrical theater going experiences of my life is I, I saw Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley do True West in, oh, in wow. New York and I wish 
I had spent the whatever thousands of dollars I would have needed to to go the next night because they alternated roles every night. Oh, my um, God. Oh, wow. Which is the way that True West sort of, that's like, I mean, it wasn't the way it was originally produced, but that kind of became the, the most sort of, uh, like, actory way to do it was that two actors would learn both parts and every night switch roles. And I, it, it, what was so crazy to me is that I saw it with Philip Seymour Hoffman as the sort of the more conservative writerly brother and John C. Riley as the, um, you know, the more re- rebellious brother. Mm. Um, and huh. uh, I can't imagine it being the other way around after seeing it. Do you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. and, but then yeah. I've talked to people who saw it the opposite way, um, and they they feel the same way. And then I talked to people yeah. who saw it both ways, and they were like, "It was the most amazing experience of my life." You know, like so. Yeah, I, I mean, when was that? That had to have been in two thousand or ninety nine. So I was twenty. It, was, it had a huge mm. impact on me. It was. It was. It's just such an amazing play. Like I actually want to reread it because um, it's in the same collection of uh, plays that I, I I got to to read Barry Child, and I want to reread it. Um, but you know, like it was just a defining moment for me. It was like, oh, this is what theater can do. This is mm-hmm. what good actors can do, and a good writing, and just it just you know, it was it was mind boggling. It was so. Beautiful. I always I always imagine when you talk about you and Shiloh uh, writing scripts and stuff together. That is like true West. Yeah. <laughs> well, our first short film, Irish Twins, owes such a debt to True West. Like it is, you know, it's about two brothers and fighting and drinking. It's like so clearly like, and I, I hadn't really thought about that until I popped open this book and and started thinking about Sam Shepard again. I was like, oh my god! Like six years or seven years after I'd seen that play, I went and made a short film that was so clearly like a you know a short version of the, the a lot of the same issues that True West wrestles with. Um, and God, I love that play. There's a moment in that play where um, one of the, you know, the, 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 I think it's it's between scenes, like it's maybe it's the end of an act break or whatever, where where the the character, I think his name is Lee, he's the like the swaggering criminal brother, uh, makes like he tells his brother, the writerly nerdy one, like you couldn't you couldn't steal a toaster, right. and and then the the next scene opens. And he's stolen toasters from all the neighbors, <laughs> and so the play comes out, and the, you know the, it's not a changing set; it's it's just a living room or a kitchen slash living room, like you know it's just a house. And uh, I was seeing it, it at the, the production I saw was in a, in the round, so it's like you're basically the whole audience is sur- or not in the round completely. I want it was circle in the square theater, I think. So you're, you're mostly like the audience is like looking at each other a lot of it. So you're looking down on this living room set, and we all notice the smell of toast, and oh, it's because awesome. he's he's toasting. He's toasty in all these different toasters that he's stolen. And so the scene over, and I just remember being like, what is that smell? Oh my God, why do I smell toast? And it's like the next morning after he spent the night stealing all these toasters and now he's making toast to just kind of piss his brother off. And it's like, you, and it's like one of those things that you're like, right, that's what theater can do. You can smell the toast. Mm -hmm. And, and what that, you know, what that does is it like physically brings you into this, this this satisfaction that this character is feeling like to prove to his brother like I can steal shit too like I can be as just as rebellious as you and it's like it was such a wonderful thing you're like yeah like you could watch a movie where that happens but it's not going to be the same as if you're sitting in the theater smelling that toast and for right. the rest of the scene you're smelling the way that scene started it's that's just like so yeah that's theater it's so cool that's, that's yeah. awesome and you know for listeners that have never seen True West um 
there's a, a really good version um, with Gary Sinise and John Malkovich that you can you can watch online. Um, oh Jesus! That, I bet that's amazing. Yeah, I I, I don't remember. Um, I think it, it might have been on PBS or something initially. I remember watching it on TV. Um, but John Malkovich is really good in it. I mean, John Malkovich is good in most things. So speaking, um, but so that one. That yeah, speaking of Gary Sinise, I'm I'm looking at this note. Uh, so. Gary Sinise was also in Buried Child, and it was his work on the play that uh, made Sam Shepard change a lot of stuff. So, so that's pretty interesting. I guess mm. Gary Sinise is mm-hmm. total Sam Shepard head, or at least some kind of muse. Um, oh, he, he's per- I mean, you can imagine mm. Gary Sinise in almost every role of Yeah, I know. Sam it doesn't say who he plays. He, he defines that sort of mm-hmm. guy. Like, it, that's, yeah, that denim wearing three button guy right. three unbuttoned buttons guy that, that Todd was describing like Gary Sinise is such that guy right That's I liked him in the, did you guys ever see Forrest Gump okay alright let's get back to the play let's get back to the play please he was he was Lieutenant Dan okay um, also, I'm noticing it's Gary Sinise that directed this so that's pretty interesting alright so Barry Child uh, I think we've already kind of set the stage a little bit um, I it's incredible like how descriptive mm. he is of his set. Um, I don't like, you know, not all playwrights do that. Um, in fact, often it's, it's, they, they don't even bother to describe where you are and, and leave that up. But he is so specific. It's very cinematic. It's describing the, the frayed carpet and the, 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 the way the sofa looks and the textures. He describes what everybody's wearing. Um, so it really, it has like this, this quality to it that, um, on the page, you, you, I think that's part of why you can imagine Gary Sinise and a lot of his roles. It's like there, it, there, there's a very clear stylistic uh, clothing choices, and um, you know, there's there's such character, uh, such a defined cultural archetypes that he's playing with um, throughout the, this play, and, and it seems like all his plays. Um, and I, I wonder how much they will translate into different productions. Like I would love to see like mm. three different productions of Barry child and see if they stick to the sort of letter of the law of Sam Shepard's writing, or if, you know, Shelley's rabbit fur coat becomes something different in a different version. Um, but yeah, it's very, very specific. Um, I, I, I've already kind of said this, but, and I'm curious what you guys think, especially you, Julia, like be, because there, it, there is such a, a defined Sam Shepherdness, or it, it, mm-hmm. it I, I couldn't help but feel like I knew where this play was going. I knew it, you know, and, and I appreciate it because I can sort of take my brain away and go like, Oh, well it was written in 1979 when this type of play didn't feel cliche, but it did strike me as kind of like, mm-hmm. Oh, I, 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 I got it from like the, the second page of the play. I was like, I know where all of this is going to go. And, it was great. It's very, very well written. But um, how did how did you feel about that, Julia? Did you have any sense of that? Yeah, I mean, well, like you, Ryder, I really love Faulkner. So mm-hmm. I was like, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. And in terms of like relationships and family secrets and plots like that, I mean, I was, I felt like I was on solid ground. But right. I think, especially just reading it and not seeing it. Um, what was really interesting about this style to me is I was like, I, what I was feeling is this is both super realism and so surreal at the same time. Yeah, yeah. very strange. And that, that that 
balance was really captivating. So, you know, this repetition of like, oh, I found all this corn. There's corn everywhere, too. There's no corn. Yes, there is corn. No, there isn't. Um, And it's about something so, you know, like literally in the ground, literally physical. It does not seem like something you could argue about whether or not there is corn outside Um, that it was it's it was unique to me in that way. You know, it was neither so grounded in realism that I felt like I could predict or like write every line um, and certainly not cliche, um, but it was also surreal in a way that I was kept kept off balance so yeah I didn't feel I didn't feel like oh this is like you know something I've seen a million times rather it felt like something that I was like seeing in some kind of mirror you know like I've seen other things that I know came after this or before it or in different forms Mm -hmm. um but I didn't feel a sense of like I knew where it was going Mm -hmm. especially with the ominous uh title buried child you know I I was really into the title, which is not something we ever talk about, but it just no, seemed we, to... Which is weird. Yeah. You never do talk about titles. It Well, usually they're just kind of either like super vague or, you right. know, really bad. So why talk about them? But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know... It's like giving, it's like giving something yeah. a name, you know? Like, why would you give something a name? To that point, the, the introduction to the, um, the edition I have was written by Richard Gilman, and he talks about titles and names a Mm. lot and listen to what he has to say um most of his sam shepherds most of his titles float bob up and down from the plays on shorter or longer strings they appear as aggressions put-ons or parodies but almost never as traditional titles in some direct or logical connection to the works they seem crazily theatrical in themselves they scare you or break you up before the curtain has even risen and here he lists them or some of them dog killer's head 4-h club the holy ghostly cowboy mouth Shaved splits, fourteen hundred thousand. Back dog, back bog beast bait. The tooth of crime, blue bitch. Action, the mad dog blues. Angel city, geography of a horse dreamer. Operation sidewinder, curse of the starving class. Forensic and the navigators. Icarus's mm-hmm. mother. And then he says, I don't know if it has been pointed out how these titles resemble the names of rock groups <laughs> or pieces of graffiti or certain writings on T-shirts. They don't denote finished discrete dramas as much as a continuing action, a calling of attention. They're less identifications than announcements. Mm. I think that's yeah. so true. It's really interesting. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, because with Buried Child, I mean, a title, especially on a play where you're sitting there with a playbill on your lap, a title is a kind of promise or mystery. And this title resonates through so many of the characters and so many you know, so many of the symbols Mm -hmm. that it is, you're kind of constantly referring back to it in a way that is not true of most other works or plays that I've seen. So, so yeah, I found it to be a surreal experience based in gritty American detail, which didn't really surprise me. um, You know, the the surrealism for me, I I read this play in college at some point, um, but I don't, I didn't really remember it very well. But what I did recall is that I, at the beginning of the play, the there's there's um, the main character at the beginning is uh, a character named Dodge, who is in his seventies and quite ill and is on a couch, and it becomes apparent that he is both drunk and also probably suffering from a bit of dementia. And at first, mm-hmm. what what the surrealism represented to me was 
Dodge's view of the world, the deteriorating view that Dodge had of the world because of his mm -hmm. mental faculties leaving him. But then as other characters come into the story, or come, in, come, come onto the stage, and you recognize, particularly when Dodge is asleep or off stage, that everyone is viewing the world in a skewed way, that, that it's not just Dodge's view that is unreliable, it's everyone's view that is unreliable. And then I realized, oh gosh, this is this is a thing that I've not really seen before, really portrayed, where you're where you're bouncing back and forth from surrealism to hyperrealism, and then of course it's an allegory simply for the destruction of the nuclear family, the, the changing way right. the American dream is both uh, attained and envisioned, what it means to have been a hero, and how what heroism means at different times in different people's lives. I mean, there's a lot of shit that Sam Shepard puts yeah. into one little play. Um, and I don't know if he could do all that without it being also a little surreal and madcap. But there's, there's a bit of this where it's a little therbery where people are like running in and out and there's a guy with a missing leg and people are waving the leg. And I mean, it gets a little zany at, at one point late in the play. <laughs> it does. Yeah. <laughs> and it seems like it would be really hard to... I mean, it, 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 in a way, that's kind of what's exciting about reading this. Like, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, like, as a director or as an actor, this is a difficult play. You know, it's like it's not easy because you could really throw things out of balance easily and make the audience, like, inappropriately, like, think this is hysterical mm -hmm. or maybe entirely appropriately think this is hysterical. I don't know. Like, you could go so many different ways with this, which is what makes it a very rich text. Um I think it's brilliant. I I, I loved it, um, and I, I think like Julia, what your point? I think the surrealism really sells it, sells it for me because it's just if this had just stayed in the sort of like Tennessee Williams realism like world, um, I, I I would feel like oh I've seen this a million times. I know where this is going, but like the images, even though I didn't see them, just reading them, the images linger with me, and the um, the weird. The weird physical objects that are brought on stage—the carrots, the corn husks—and um, um, and and the violence that isn't really that violent, but um, is very mm -hmm. disturbing. There, there's a there's a, a, a very sort of uh, aggressive scene between a, a guy and a, a female character um, that is just like disturbing. And you, it's like it's not even violent, but it's incredibly violent and it's non-violence and in its sexual nature, it's. And it's, it's, again, it's a very surreal moment, but you know exactly what's going on and, and it, it's mm -hmm. just awful. Um, and, um, yeah, like I, even that moment I feel like has been, has been stolen, uh, time and time again by other movies. And, um, and, and so it's, it's nice to read something like this and go like, oh, this is like one of those sort of founding documents of American theater, um, and uh and it and holds we, up we should mention we should mention the i mean the central conceit i mean we can give out some spoilers because this play has been out since 1976 mm -hmm. or whatever um you know that the buried child in question and and it we don't know in, really until the very end if it's true or not but that this family had a child that uh they killed and buried in their backyard and you don't know as the play is going on whether that is the idea of a child, whether that is the memory of another son who died, if it is a metaphor for a thousand different things. But 
it is the family secret and that's the tennessee williams part mm -hmm. that 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 gothic concrete stuff of weird backwoods life that can happen where well maybe you have a baby and you kill it and no one knows because there's no one around you gave birth at home you know all that stuff that that we've been reading about for a thousand years and i think shepherd plays with that he plays with this notion of you know what happens in this house stays in this house we are solid country people and we do what we want to do we grow our own corn we make our, we get our own potatoes and carrots but what when we enter this play the land has grown fallow around their house no vegetables are growing anymore the patriarch of the family is dying on the sofa the matriarch of the family is going on about the loss of god in society and is dressed in all black and is going to church she says but it's, you don't know if she's going to church or if she's going to a funeral it's not really clear so there's all this stuff going on but the 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 larger issue is that all the characters that then come into the, the play and it's the sons of dodge and his wife Haley, and then a grandson and the grandson's girlfriend all of them are are circling around this one central question of is there actually a child buried in the backyard yeah um and that metaphor um isn't solved really until the very end of of the play itself so there's this madcap stuff that goes on there's this obviously very serious stuff that goes on and sometimes you laugh because you hope that what it is they're talking about is not true because then you then it's the most disgusting thing you've ever read. Um, I mean, I think that you, I think that what you you're, can you're kill and bury someone in the backyard, but you can't kill and bury a kid. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think like the the, the question that you, you know the question that you're asking yourself, like you said, is is there a buried child in the backyard, or are they using this? Are they talking about this metaphorically, or is this for real? Also, like there's there's something threatening the corporeality of all of the characters. Um, right. There's like this weird sense that like people might not actually be there, that people might look at each other and not see each other for who they really are. And mm -hmm. like, and then of course there's one character who has lost a leg and he seems completely incapable of existing without his leg attached to him, his wooden leg attached to him. Um, and then like some characters are off stage. Like, um, is it Hallie or Haley? Do you think I the mom? Don't know. Anyway. I was thinking Haley. So Haley's like disembodied for like the entire first half of the play. She's just a right. voice. And like, and then, you know, I don't know. It's it's like, you're actually questioning the reality of who, it, like people's bodies on stage. And um, the character of Shelley, who, so the, the main drama of the play is, is that this grandson who has been gone for six years shows up with a girlfriend um, and they, she's from Los Angeles. Um, and, I don't think that's a coincidence either. I think that, you know, the fact that she comes from a place without roots and that doesn't have a, a sort of like history the way that this family has this like deep, you know, American generational history with, with the place and the land. And she comes in and she's all like excited to meet this Norman Rockwell painting family and <laughs> yeah. is quickly drawn into this nightmare. Uh, you know, like there's so much of like them not recognizing the son, like his physical existence is like sort of ignored by half of them. Mm -hmm. um, it's weird. It's really weird. And it's like, yeah. you know, like you said, you keep asking yourself like, okay, these people are all delusional or are they intentionally ignoring this kid? And then like the question of this other son, Ansel, did you guys quite get whether he really existed or not, or what the the story was of him? I think yeah. He... So Ansel, yeah, 
he was real. Yeah, yeah he was real. Because no one else referred to him except for Haley. Yeah. But that wasn't the buried child. No. No, the the other boys, uh, um, the Tilden or whatever his name is, he talks about Ansel. So they talk about, um, so Ansel dies in weird circumstances in a hotel room, uh, but he was the, the local hero. He was the sports star and he could do anything. He was, he, I mean, he's the cliche of the, the fair-haired the boy. The American hero, city. right. Yeah, and so the mother uh, purportedly leaves the house to go talk to the priest about getting a sculpture of the sun put in the town square, basically. But it, it also becomes clear that maybe the mom is having an affair with the priest. I mean, there's all kinds of weird stuff that's, that's Oh, she's on. definitely she having is, an affair yeah. with the priest. Yeah. yeah. There's no doubt um, But the, the son is, is, is real, I, I believe, because he also stands for that hope of the American West, of this great star. And they... they the 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 um the monument they're going to build to Ansel is a monument of him playing basketball while holding a shotgun. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're so the sons, you know, they're all something close to the American dream with all something grotesque or wounded about them. So, I mean, there could right. have been a lot there are an unlimited number of sons. To go back to Shelley for a second, I mean, what you're saying, Ryder, is so interesting because, so, you know, her entrance into the play is she's obviously a stand-in for the entire, you know, L.A. or West Coast or whatever audience of like, oh, my God, this is so nostalgic. This is so cute. Let me spend an hour or two in this zone and then she just tries to backtrack out and she's trapped and i i just love that idea that she's so directly speaking for the audience um (laughs) she's on stage for maybe five minutes before she's just like nope this is creepy i would like to leave almost literally and that is almost the line Uh, so that's really wonderful. And then she's like, they're like, could you deal with this corn? She's like, fine, I'll just be over here with the corn. (laughs) Or the the carrots, I mean. It's like, I'd just be over here peeling carrots. I don't want to have to deal with any human beings. It's amazing. She's such an interesting character. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, good play. I mean, I don't know if I have more to say about it because it is so simple in its own way. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where you want it to wash over you. Um, rather mm-hmm. than pull every line apart. Yeah, and and I think that um, I would really like to see it. I would love to yeah. see this played on the stage. So we should ask you, Ryder, the difference between the two versions that we read. So yeah. the version that Julia and I read, there is, according to the front note from Sam Shepard, there is a heightened sense of the weird sexual attraction between Dodge and his grandson's girlfriend, Shelley. Is that oh yeah, parents? that's not in there at all. Oh yeah, it's deep. <laughs> I mean, it, well, there there is he 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 uh, he teases her and like really humiliates her, um, and but no, I, I, there's there's not really that much. I don't think it's very like. Flirty he essentially or... he essentially uh, at first and Julia, you can tell me if you thought this was different. Mm-hmm. I, he begins to confuse her initially with his wife. Oh yeah, yeah. None of that. yeah. So there's there's a there's a sort of a mirroring going on with Shelley um, now versus H- Haley or Hallie or whatever, however you pronounce her name when they were young and in love. So there's there's an absolute weird sort of sexual thing going on with Dodge. It's not reciprocated on Shelley's part. 
it should be noted. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also um, Shepard heightened Vince. Vince is the grandson. Heightened Vince's consequences uh, and role in the story so that Vince is the one who ends up putting a lot of things together at the end of the play. Good, so, because Vince is such a bad character in this version of yeah, the play. Yeah, so... Oh, the yeah, weakest he, part of the play he, for me. Here's the Sam Shepard yeah. quote. So, uh, oh, wait, here we go. Uh, but most important, the character Vince seemed to be hanging in the wind without real purpose. Even though a, yeah. a core truth of this character is his aimlessness and passivity, there seemed to be no point in hel- allowing him to be completely outside the play almost in the predicament of a narrator. So I began to try to find ways to bring him around to see the light, as it were, without turning him into some kind of hero or Sherlock Holmes. Finally, the language began to settle in and take hold. And this this is really interesting. I did want to talk about mm-hmm. this. Um, there were fewer gaps between the actors, the characters, and the words. I'm very grateful for having had the opportunity to do this work. It's now a better play. So for Sam Shepard to have written this play that launched his career and won a Pulitzer Prize, <laughs> go back right. almost 30 years later and say, nope, this was bad. Let me just make some awesome. major changes. It is so commendable, you know, especially for a playwright who could do whatever he wanted. He could have even rewritten a totally different version of this play, fixing the problems, but to like take that risk on your own text based on the influence of another artist or set of artists, in this case, Gary Sinise and the actors who are in this production, it's, that's really cool and wonderful and something really exciting. I think that speaks to the the collaborative nature of theater in general. Yeah. I love that. You know, I love that he still maintained that. And also, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised because he was so prolific. Like, you look at the amount of plays the guy wrote. He never stopped. And... And it doesn't seem like he ever like rested on his laurels or, or or felt like he was done as an artist. And I think that's, you know, God, I really hope I'm always like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No matter how much success. Uh, yeah. The one one last thing, uh, it, which makes me now want to read the previous version, uh, which is in the same preface, is uh, he says, when Gary Sinise started work on the Steppenwolf production in Chicago in 1995. Enough time had elapsed for me to clearly see the holes in the play. This insight was also heightened by Gary's instinct to push the characters and situation into an almost burlesque territory, which you really see in the kind of madcap stuff that begins to happen in the middle of it as things get crazier and crazier and crazier. And I don't think of Shepard as being a guy who goes for madcap. You know, he goes like, people get crazier. Um, So I'm... Now I, I got to go back and read the original version. To cool. See the difference. It's great. I mean, it really, the, the only weakness I felt was the Vince character. Like when you guys said that they were rewriting, I was hoping that because it's 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 the it's the most difficult role. Like you could see an actor just being screwed with that role. Yeah. Because he comes back really drunk and doesn't do anything. He just comes back and he's like babbling for two pages and and then he like cuts his way and has a complete turn where he's like turning on Shelley and now he's just going to be part of his family and there's no reason why there's no change he hasn't been there for any revelation he's just sort of like you know absorbed by the house which is kind of cool actually you know thematically but as a character as a as an actor I was like oh this would be a shitty role to have you know it would be a great <laughs> role is freaking Bradley whose entrance is sneaking on stage and weirdly cutting Dodge's hair yeah that's, that's a treat tell. yeah <laughs> Oh, you know, actually, I wanted to talk about that for a second. <laughs> I, so, did you guys, I mean, did you guys feel like that was a Samson reference? Yes. 
Of course. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. So that was like my first like, and this is uh, this is probably gonna go way down a rabbit hole that I shouldn't talk about. But oh no, it was like, but I. I you were no doing way so anyone well. on the internet will be angry with you. Sorry, we we're gonna wrap this up. <laughs> but but I guess I want to talk about this because I I, I had a you know, I had like a nice journey with this, and I think it, it, there's a, there's a, there's maybe a point in here, which okay. is that. Um, my initial instinct when I, you know, I saw the the haircut in, or in, in in the play, and I put the play down, and I was like, "Huh, okay, well, that's obviously like a Samson Delilah reference, right?" So I was like, eh, "Let's look up Samson and Delilah on Wikipedia," and I get the like Wikipedia Delilah entry, and I read like two lines. I'm like, what the, "Wait, hold on, what am I doing? Like, what? I've read the Bible. When was the last time I read?" The Bible, like, so I like stopped reading Wikipedia, like went over to my shelf where I have my Bible, yep. and I like opened it up, and then I Wikipedia, or then I Google searched which verses are the the Samson Delilah, you know, Samson verses, mm-hmm. and it's like okay, Judges sixteen through twenty or whatever. Then I went and got my Bible, oh, and go. I spent uh, this is this is this morning by the way because I just read the play this morning, so I got lost in reading Judges fifteen, uh, Judges thirteen through. 17 and uh it was amazing like it was such a funny and then i'm sitting there like reading about I mean, all, by the way it's like like all of it is in the play like there's so much yeah. here that is valuable to reading the play like for, did you guys know like delilah is like the the, the end of samson do you guys know about samson yeah she takes away his strength right play very well okay Dude, it's so crazy. He's married before Delilah. Delilah he's not even married to. Like, Samson, like, it starts with his parents. And you get this whole angel comes to visit his parents. And what they say to his parents, because she's, she's barren, she can't have kids. So the angel of God appears and says, you're, you're, we need, you, we're going to need you to help us defeat the, the Philistines, because they're, you know, they're at war with the Philistines. And uh, we're going to need you to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So don't drink. Stop drinking. Mm-hmm. Don't eat anything unclean. And you'll have a boy who's a Nazarite. And this a Nazarite, I was like, "What the hell is a fucking Nazarite?" And you look up a Nazarite. Back to so Wikipedia. Then I go back on. I look up. Yep. Exact. Back to Wikipedia, <laughs> but just for the definition, because it's an Israelite consecrated to the service of God, under vows from to abstain from alcohol, let the hair grow, and avoid defilement by contact with corpses. Yeah. All right. Don't right? fuck corpses. No, 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 no. Don't but touch think about Barry Child. There's a dead yeah. kid in the yeah. yard. Like, it's all there. So then I go back, and I'm reading Samson, and, like, this is the craziest fucking story. Like, it just makes you realize how whack the Bible is. Like, so he, he so the angel comes, and, and the, like, the guy's wife, he visits the guy's wife and says, you're going to have this kid, Samson, da, da, da. and the, he's like, the the guy's husband or the wife's husband comes home and she's like he's like I don't believe you I don't think this was an angel so then they start a fire and they sacrifice the angel and the angel burns and and they realize like oh, it was an Whoops. angel oh my god we pissed god <laughs> off let's go forward but then they're not gonna drink they're not gonna cut their hair they have the kid and then Samson it's so surreal he's like born and he's kind of powerful and then he runs into a lion he kills a lion with his bare hands and honey 
comes out from the inside of the lion. That's it's like weird. so trippy. He eats the honey, and then he brings the honey back to his parents, and he, he makes them eat it. And then he's like, I picked this woman from the Philistines. And her, the parents are like, you can't just pick a Philistine. Like, they're bad people. But apparently, it was all part of God's plan to have him marry a Philistine so the Philistines Spoiler can betray alert. Samson. <laughs> so the Israel, Israelites will kill all the Philistines. It's so violent and fucked up yeah. and weird. But fundamentally, uh, so then the Samson turns to the people and uh, to the Philistines and he says, look, you got to give me this woman. And if you can figure out this riddle, I'll give you a bunch of clothes. I'll give you 30 linens and f- like whatever. It's like, you know, he's going to give them a bunch of money and, and stuff if they can figure out the riddle. And the riddle is nonsense, but it's about him killing this lion. And <laughs> what they do is they go to his wife and say, get the secret of the riddle. And she nags him. And nags him until Samson tells her the secret. And so it's, and this is a quote from the Bible. And because she nagged him on the seventh day, he told her. So then he loses to the Philistines, has to pay them. And uh, he turns on his wife. He like basically gives his wife to his best man um, because she (laughs) nagged him. And what he says to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Ugh. It's like this complete oh woman-hating Gross. bullshit. And then he, yeah, so then he, he you know, his, ends up killing all the Philistines. His wife dies. And I think he kills her too. It's awful. And then he like, you know, has a jawbone of a donkey that he uses to kill thousands of people. It's so surreal and awesome. Can I ask, and you, then, can I ask you a question? Just a yeah. technical question. How do they catch the angel to burn it? Okay, this is... Uh, no, he actually, he offers up. He says oh. like, go ahead and have a sacrifice, but burn me. If you, you know, it's like to prove the point, basically. How dare you interrupt this greatest rider freight train of all time? I just, I was confused because I thought, well, why doesn't the angel just leave? All right, you're very behind. Way at the end. Okay, so way at the end. Now we've already, so Samson's lived his life. He's like killed people with the jawbone of a donkey. Like that's what? And then we even like explain how that is. But then he like throws the jawbone around and then it's like, and that's why it's the jawbone hill. And then he like is thirsty and he's like, God, you got to give me some water. I just killed a bunch of Philistines for you. So then God like opens up a river valley and now it's like always known as this real river valley. So it's all like this mythological, whatever. But then like all the way at the end of his like story, you get this little Delilah thing where he just falls in love with this woman of sorts in the Valley of Sorek, and um, he comes to her, and again, a woman betrays him, because the Philistines go to Delilah, and they're like, tell us the secret of Samson's power, and so she goes to Samson, and is like, tell me the secret of your power, how do I bind you, and he says, well, the only way to bind me, and he gives her two false stories, and they're like, you know, you have to be these kinds of bindings, and and each time, he breaks through, and turns to Delilah, and says, you've lied to me, but he stays with her, and then the third time, again, after she, this is quote, after she had nagged him with her words day after day and pestered him, he was tired to death. So that's why Samson says, I get my power from my hair. And she cuts his hair in the middle of the night and he's captured and the Philistines gain power. And then he destroys their temple because his hair starts to grow back once he's a prisoner and he's brought in front of all of the Philistines and he knocks down because he's, he's getting his hair back and he asks God for the final strength to kill all these people. But anyway, I thought it was amazing. Like, people talk about the story of Samson and Delilah, but I always thought it was like, oh, a guy got a power from his hair and his right. wife cut it. But it's like, actually, that's the last part of this giant story about a guy being nagged by women. <laughs> like, wow. That's what it comes down to. It's How like, beautiful. He is, he is like, this, yeah, isn't it awful? Wow, I'm so but, glad that every major world religion is built on that. How exciting. So, Julia, exactly. are you going to tell 
your child the story of Samson and Delilah? And who in that story will you be focusing on for your child? Um, I will be focusing on learning to turn a donkey jawbone into a weapon. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. That is correct. I know. Anyway, I no longer my, need to my, know. My meta point that I'd like to make here is get the fuck off Wikipedia. <laughs> like, I was so happy. I had, like, such a fun adventures. Like, this was only, like, it's so short. What I read is actually, you know, because the Bible is pretty quick and, like, it's just one sentence and thousands of people die. So, like... I just, I, I was, I, I'm just like, that's going to be my new thing is the second I find a reference in something and I want to look it up, I'm going back to a real book because you end up having all these weird side adventures and realizations and like reference points that you never get otherwise. And like, it, you know, it only mildly influenced my understanding of this play, but it just like opened up a whole nother part of my brain. And I just, I'm, I'm so sick of like taking the shortcut, which is looking online and letting somebody else tell me what this means or like the meaning yeah. of this biblical story Word. or this interpretation, go to the source. Like if you can go find the source in your home or at the library or online or on your Kindle, but don't just go for like the easy definition because it's like, it's so worth it. Like you end up having so much more fun and it like, it's, it's a little more exhausting, but it, it takes a little bit more time, but man, like I'm just, I'm high from that experience. And it's, it so it's super worth it with the Bible too, because you know, I, I'm not religious, but everyone should read the Bible because it has influenced everything. So the more that you understand, you know, and can connect things like that, it is, it's really fun and meaningful and brings a lot of richness to <laughs> your intellectual life. Wow, Ryder, I don't think we can or should come back from that absolute insanity. We just let's, analyzed let's, a whole play and Samson and Delilah. <laughs> let me just say that uh, next week when we debut Literary Leviticus, that <laughs> writer is going to step back Dude, in. If we, if, you know what we could do? We could start just doing like Bible little excerpts. Like we all just read like one of these stories because there's a lot of them and they're all pretty short. We could do like one an episode and just, you know, all three of us read a little Bible what, verse. What I can tell you is that in, over the course of the last five years, having read all of the Talmud, mm-hmm. yeah. it gets weirder. <laughs> oh, yeah. It gets weirder. It's it's so sexist, and, like, God is just so villainous. Like, he's just lying to everybody and getting these people to turn on these people, and it's really twisted. Well, thank God it hasn't wow. had any effect on our, our normal everyday life. Oh no, it does every single Oh, uh, okay. That's <laughs> enough. <laughs> All right, everybody, go out and read a Sam Shepard play. He was an American hero. He actually is featured in the Bible. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if we're gonna get a lot of Sam Shepard revivals in the next couple of years. Yeah. So go oh, and see totally. it when it's on near you. For sure. Yeah. And he also yeah. was a spaceman. Yeah.